Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's the Wonky Show. We are talking the OIA on industrial action. The OFS tackle the equality gap. The largest survey on sexual harassment on campus and DfE priorities. It's all coming up. On the one hand, look, this is a response to recent headlines uh, about VCs um, leaving their posts under uh, under a cloud. On the other, I think it reflects real concerns in Whitehall about the quality of decision-making and scrutiny at university level. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your direct way into higher education, policy, people and politics. I'm your host, Rachel Firth, and here to swim across the vast lake of higher education policy. As usual, we have three excellent guests. In Plymouth, we have Lucy Finlay, Managing Director of Social Enterprise Mark CIC. Lucy, what's your highlight of the week, please? Hi, Rachel. Um, My highlight of the week is the fact that I've been made a green action ambassador by defra so i was in the house houses of parliament uh on uh tuesday night and uh we were welcomed unfortunately michael gove couldn't make it due to the b word um but we had (laughs) we had uh the minister there uh therese coffee um and she was very enthusiastic about it all the other types of um um, other types of ambassadors included Jan Leeming who I didn't know was uh, particularly environmental uh, but she has been doing lots of work with cheetahs apparently so uh, yeah it was quite oh. exciting just so well congratulations to you and sorry that Michael Gove had a badminton game so he couldn't uh, yeah. make it um, <laughs> and in Brixton we have Charles Heyman HE public affairs and strategy expert Charles give me your highlight of the week please my highlight of the week is uh, uh, I think doing this podcast and being able to work <laughs> at home in my dressing gown sitting at my front table and pretending it's work so thank you ah. Well, what you don't know is we're all wearing our dressing gowns because it's where your dressing gown to uh, work, dear. And in Gloucestershire, we have Wonky's associate editor, David Kernahan, or as or DK, as we all know him. DK, your moment of the week, please. Well, it's got to be between seeing the uh, Costas Amendment uh, unanimously passed by the House of Commons last night, which means that finally we're going to start seeing a government being sensible about securing the rights of EU citizens. And uh, going to see the mighty Steely Dan in Birmingham at the weekend, which was absolutely fantastic. What an absolute treat. This week, we will kick off with the Office of the Independent Adjudicator, or OIA, who have published a selection of the complaints from students they reviewed relating to industrial action in early 2018. So, DK, what is this one all about? So, the Office for the Independent 
adjudicator, the OIA, is where a student can complain after they have exhausted all of the complaints mechanisms on offer to them at their institution. It's like complaining about the way a complaint was handled. Now, at the time of the industrial action, around about this time last year, um, a bunch of students did actually make complaints saying that they had missed out on educational opportunities because of staff being on strike and um, in many cases asked for compensation or a refund of their uh, student fees. Now they published the complaints themselves in summary and their judgments on that. Now what's interesting to me is not that they are offering compensation in terms of um, a refund on uh, student fees, but that they are seeing um, a detriment as a loss of an educational opportunity as well as the loss of something that would take you towards getting a qualification. So it's not just an instrumental perspective that you might have missed something that is in the exam. They're actually suggesting institutions compensate students because they missed the opportunity to learn something, which I think is really, really positive. That this is especially happening at um, a master's and postgraduate level. Um, which, um, again, is interesting and worthy of note. There's a fantastic article about this on the site by Felicity Mitchell, who is the independent adjudicator, and the rulings themselves are on the OIA site. And sort of on the one hand, look, if we're serious about students being customers, then they need to be treated as customers. And I think if you go back a year ago, um, there was a very clear message coming from the government, coming from the then minister, Sam Jima, he said this more than once during the USS dispute that universities should pay back students who had missed out on classes. Uh, that was a sort of clear instruction to uh, uh, to the student body from uh, uh, you know from the government, and uh, I think it's interesting how that that sort of played out. Um, I think on the other point, my other thought was look, the contractual relationship between students and universities is unusual. Um, there's give and take. Students have consumer rights, but they've also got responsibilities. Um, and as DK says, look, you're not buying a degree, you're buying access to the teaching and services to enable you to get a degree. And the onus is on you to do the work, so it cuts both ways. And it was just a sort of mischievous thought I had, but if a student doesn't turn up to a lecture or seminar and deliberately reduces their own contact time, what redress does the university have? And it was a sort of philosophical point that, that I thought when I read the uh, uh, OIA's uh, sort of report this week. That's a really interesting one, because if I don't show up to my personal trainer, which I don't have, um, I still have to pay my £60, right? Um, so, but anyway, um, sorry, uh, Lucy, did you have any thoughts on this one? That last comment just struck with me. Um, my husband uh, works in the university and I know that they've had discussions because they record all of their lectures and... Uh, that can lead to, you know, people not turning up and then that dilutes the uh, the sort of discussions that can go on um, in lectures. So I think that thing about it cutting both ways is quite an interesting one and what the give-get relationship is really between the students. So um, it's quite an interesting development. And of course, we think of social, uh, we think of universities as social enterprises. And so to a certain degree, that kind of give-get um, in a social enterprise is, is key because that organisation isn't just there to, um, you know, isn't isn't just there to solely do um, education. It's there 
to um, f- for the betterment of of, um, of of society, really. So it, it's not a clear a clear cut thing, I don't think. I think there's a few interesting little points to take away. The thing I mentioned at the top about the compensation for the loss of educational opportunity, as well as for the loss of um, a lightly uh, qualification or uh, the quality of that qualification, um, is pretty key. Um, we're also, I think, um, looking to see how many more of these that the OIA is going to publish. My understanding is a bunch of institutions have uh, compensated students, uh, both undergraduate and postgraduate, uh, by means of a refund of their fee. But what I think is interesting is that students, of course, don't technically pay the fee themselves. This is actually a reduction on um, a fee that's been paid by the government and the graduate will eventually pay back. But my understanding is a student just gets the cash in their pocket. So it's an interesting little way of doing that. You think perhaps that an institution may also choose to do a refund direct to the student loans company, meaning the graduate would pay back slightly less over their working life. Okay, okay, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. Hi, I'm Rachel Piper. I'm the policy manager at Student Minds, which is the UK's student mental health charity. We've just launched a new guide for the higher education sector on co-producing mental health strategies with students. We've done this because we're seeing a growing number of universities take on mental health and wellbeing as a strategic priority. And we really want to make sure that these strategies are created with those that they affect. This guide offers a range of trialled and tested practical tools to increase the role of student voice in strategy development. We know that student-led research can be carried out with as much methodological vigour as any other research. And our co-production work in the past has enabled university staff to use the learning to challenge and supplement and add richness to pre-existing data and knowledge. The very process of co-production has wide-reaching benefits for students and the broader community, not least the potential for improved health outcomes, skills development and much more relevant strategies. If we truly listen to and understand the lived experience of students, we can create innovative and powerful solutions to the challenge of improving mental health in our university communities. And this guide is a practical tool through which to do that. Right, next up, the news that the new independent centre funded by the Office of Students, or OFS, is set to help universities meet challenging targets to eliminate equality gaps in higher education within 20 years. So, Charles, please, would you set the scene for us on this one? We seem to be talking about this for, for months and months, but finally, the OFS this week's published its, its final guidance on access and participation. Um, and, and, and it's finally the nail in the coffin for the old uh, offer Regime, And I think there are three big changes which have been much debated on Monkey uh, uh, over the last 12 months or so. So the first is moving universities um, to setting five-year strategies for, uh, for access and participation. And this is going to allow for much longer-term planning rather than them having to, as previously, publish an access agreement every year based on ever-changing guidance from the regulator. And, and a five-year plan maps much better onto a university's relationship with students, which starts with their first contact as a, as a potential applicant to their graduation. Um, I think the other thing which has sort of uh, uh, stood out for me is that it, this is going to be a much better focused uh, sort of regime. OFS is going to be setting national priorities on, on closing gaps, um, on access and continuation progression, but it's putting the onus on the universities to achieve them. And I think uh, Jim Dickinson this week sort of pulled pulled this out that 
Um, the emphasis on working with students on design is a big is a big shift from you know from the regulator, and uh, I think it, it it asks universities the right questions in terms of their relationships with their student body, with their students' unions, and the role that they play in the in, in the life of the university. Yeah, I I just wondered. Um... Uh, about the um, the independent question of, of this, um, you know, this this centre really, uh, and how if it is funded by OFS, then um, it, I think there is there is a challenge there, and I wondered what what the exact relationship was going to be with. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, the centre to me that surprised me because um, in the past. Back when OFS was Hefke, it used to fund a bunch of sector agencies. And you'd think that this kind of uh, uh, what works stuff, this, uh, a dissemination of good teaching and admissions practice, would previously have uh, gone through something like the HE Academy or the old SPA, uh, Supporting Professional Admissions Centre, that used to run under UCAS. Um, the fact that they're effectively setting up what amounts to a new agency to do that kind of job has got to look very strange to Advance HE and to UCAS and to all of the other agencies that are playing in this space. Uh, the other point that really struck me is, I mean, obviously we've known about the national targets for a while, um, but we've also expected that these targets would be revised and altered in the light of the AUGA review. Now, back when we first saw these targets at the back end of last year, we were still expecting Olga to have turned up pretty much this month. Now that that's been delayed, they've pushed these uh, this uh, uh, guidance out um, ahead of what's going to happen in the Olga review. I mean, Olga is unlikely to hit anyone really in the next um, academic year. But in the years after that, especially if you're planning five years in a the changes to admission, the changes to the likely uh, makeup of applicants is potentially going to be quite uh, drastic. And it just seems odd to keep sticking to the old targets in these five-year plans and actually being measured against them when external conditions will have changed so rapidly. So I think it's a bit surprising that they're, um, that they're not actually holding this guidance back a bit until after August. I think we need to look at this through the prism of the spending review, this is going to set government department budgets from uh, from 2020-21 onwards. Uh, but basically, you know, it's an open conversation in the sector that um, we haven't got the most out of the 800 million, 900 million uh, pounds invested in access uh, programs uh, every year, and that despite too you know much good work, there's too much waste and duplication. And I think there's a growing mood in in DfE and government about um, universities really needing to up their game and think much more broadly about social mobility across the entire education sector from early years, schools and, and sort of colleges onwards. And sort of Damien Hines's uh, letter setting out priorities for our OFS in the next 12 months was interesting this week in that he's saying uh, access and participation schemes need to be much better joined up with other work the DfE is doing nationally um, in particular what they call social mobility opportunity areas which is focusing on um, real access sort of cold spots areas like Blackpool and Derby and Oldham um, where there's um, you know 
historically been poor um, uh, sort of participation in um, uh, higher education. And, uh, you know, when Treasury is scrutinising every penny of public subsidy that's going into universities, I think it puts the emphasis back on uh, university leaders, not just the uh, uh, talk, talk, but actually sort of walk the walk. Mm. What um, what interests me is that the if the OFS are so keen to eliminate these equality gaps, then as a regulator, they actually have a lot more kind of teeth that they could show. They they, they do have powers. They could you know they could be targets against um, you know percentage of, of students um, um, from WP backgrounds that are admitted, and that could be part of your registration. They could be fined. Um, do you, um, any of my wonderful three guests think that the OFS should? could do more and if and if they're not doing more why not i mean i would say look, it's still early days for rfs and it's deciding on the sort of regulation it's going to be and it's and it's deciding on the sort of tone and personality of how it how it interacts you know with, with, with the sectors so um you know perhaps perhaps that's why at the moment they're not using the sort of full panoply of their legislative um sort of powers but i think we've seen in the rhetoric that they've been putting out in the last sort of year um, it's really challenging the old offer approach um, as a as a sort of box ticking exercise, and it's challenging university leaders to to raise their game. Yeah, I was just I was just wondering um, if this new independent centre, the reason why it's they're, they're setting up something new, was to be seen to do something really. Um, Rather than um, having to tackle the, the the challenges that you've set out with the uh, fining, etc., which would seen as be seen as quite draconian, and and it's almost like, oh well, you know, we've done this, so therefore um, that should make a difference, and it's kind of a bit washing the hands of it, really. I mean, there's some hugely challenging national targets that the OFS have set. I mean, they're talking about the eradication entirely of these attainment uh, gaps, these access gaps by the mid-2030s. And they're looking for the end of what they're calling unexplained uh, differences by the middle of the next decade. Now, now unexplained uh, uh, worries me for all kinds of uh, technical reasons that I don't want to get in at this uh, point. But the idea that... um, universities entirely by themselves are going to be able to solve these structural societal problems. Um, That seems to me like it might not be a complete theory of change. And I think that the emphasis on universities working with partners in the schools and colleges sector and elsewhere in their local communities is going to be important. But I think a lot of this also needs to come from other players in those areas as well. So that there are that there is a chance here that I mean universities are going to have their feet held to the fire for stuff that they've not really got that much control over. I mean that's always a um, a problem with metrics uh, 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 driven regulation, but it seems to me here to be a particular risk. Yeah, I mean I've just been um, doing some work on the consultation on. on on the KEF um, and I was talking about just some of these issues and, you know, the relationship that a university has with its local community and the way in which it supports the local community obviously is key, but often they need to work in partnership uh, with other organisations and those other organisations need to be taking um, 
taking some responsibility. And of course, many of those organisations have had their budgets cut. So um, it's, a, it's a big challenge. Now, every week this season on the podcast, we are delving deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With Nottingham Trent's academic registrar, Mike Radcliffe, here is part eight of The Hidden History of HE. So how do women get their way into universities? clear way that it starts to develop is that universities um, are now working as examining bodies. So the university sets the exam and students in the colleges come and take um, the exams. So there's an exam to get in and then there's an exam as you go through the university because the matriculation exam, the exam to show that you've got the knowledge to get into university, becomes in effect a, a qualification in its own right. So um, Emily Davis, uh, who writes a book, uh, a whole series of things on uh, um, uh, why women should be allowed into higher education. Good to actually get a reference to that rather than me rambling like that. Um, Emily Davis um, sets out the argument quite clearly that what she wants when she's educating uh, a small group of women in a small domestic setting is a searching examination indispensable as a guarantee for the qualifications of teachers. She wants the women to have the test of sitting the examination. So what she wants is effectively a copy of the exam paper that the men are taking um, and she wants to be able to set that as an exam for her uh, female students to take. So that's all she wants. She doesn't want degrees. She doesn't want them to be taught alongside them. She just wants them to be able to take the same exam as the same kind of spur to their learning that the men are having to do. So she sets off in that kind of way. And we get small domestic scale colleges set up on that way. In London, you get Bedford College. Uh, Girton College is set up near Cambridge. The idea being that um, the men from the universities, the professors could come and give some lessons um, to the women uh, and therefore they get the same kind of learning but obviously they're not, met, they're not part of the university, not, not engaged in the overall work. So uh, that lasts um, for about 20-30 uh, years, that kind of system uh, is okay but that starts to come really tested when the civic universities have to think are they going to let women in at the same point as men. And there's quite an opening up uh, that comes, but it has to be worked its way through. So as an example, Owens College um, comes under pressure in the 1870s to admit uh, women to its lectures. And so it says, well, yes, we, we agree that we should have an experiment, but they can't join our college we'll set up a separate college. So they set up the Manchester and Salford Women's College um, to run alongside Owens College. Um, uh, and that lasts three years until the committee says, well, can you not just take charge of it? And then they say, well, after a couple more years, they go, well, yeah, actually, that's, that's not really working out. We'll set up a women's department. So slowly, the, the women gain entry to the university. At UCL, um, which decides it also wants to uh, teach women, um, it also has this worry about co-education. It's not clear that this is a good thing for either of the two sexes. So it has a go uh, at segregating the men from the women. So it has to think. It's going to use the same premises. Uh, so it has to think how it's going to do that. It doesn't want them mixing. They have to have separate lectures. They have to use separate laboratories. Uh, so it has this brainwave that it doesn't want them mingling uh, in between lectures even uh, of putting the women's lectures on the half hour um, so that they can't possibly mingle with the men because they, they won't even be in the corridors at the same time because their lectures are staggered and they adapt the laboratories to put in different entrances so that women can come in from a different entrance to the men so that there's a, a clear segregation. Now again that doesn't last over time and, and, and eventually you know, quite quickly they relent uh, and co-education comes from, from that. But that idea that mixing the students is going to be a major problem continues to the 19th century. So 
when Thomas Holloway sets out to uh, make a, a major uh, bequest, his wife has persuaded him that what he really wants to do uh, is set up uh, the best education suitable for women of the middle and upper classes. Another great access statement uh, uh, quote. Um, uh, he sets up sufficient money to found a women's college. He puts it nicely out of the way and obviously in the most splendid building you can possibly imagine um, but it's an idea that it's going to be a, a women's college uh, and it will set off there's a big discussion in in the late 1890s as whether it should be the nucleus of a women's university it's a whole university and an examining university just for women uh, but eventually they decide they should join the university of london and they go off in that basis Next up, the largest survey on sexual violence and harassment at UK universities, with over 5,000 students taking part, has been conducted by Brooke and Dig In. So Lucy, would you be so kind as to tell us more about this survey, please? Yeah, yeah, of course. So uh, I found this really interesting, particularly in the uh, light of uh, obviously Me Too um, and everything going on with that. But apparently misconduct is rife in universities, according to this survey, with more than half of the students saying that they have had experience of unwanted advances. And that can include um, explicit, um, explicit messages right through to rape. Um, and only a fraction of these have been actually reported to the universities or the police. Um, and there seems to be an issue about the actual definition and understanding of what legally constitutes sexual harassment and violence. Um, and the behaviours that have been included in this survey include um, inappropriate touching, explicit messages, catcalling, being followed and being forced into sex or sexual acts. And uh, only 8% of these have been reported to the police um, or the university, including a quarter of those that have been raped or forced into sexual acts. 49% um, of women have been touched inappropriately um, and a quarter have said that they have um, had unwanted uh, sexually explicit messages. I thought what was um, also interesting was that there, this issue about the question of what is defined and what constitutes uh, sexual harassment. And something I didn't know, actually, was that 52% um, didn't know that someone cannot consent to sex if they're drunk. Um, and that seemed to be causing quite a lot of commentary, actually, when I was looking on the websites. So, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely an issue. And I guess it's a question of how um if this is if this is such a problem how this is actually getting tackled and whether that works i think there's it, i think there's an interesting challenge for for universities um in that historically the the uh, the investigation powers they've got the disciplinary procedures they've got are pretty archaic and we've seen this over um the last few months in particular with warwick that's got generated a lot of national headlines that um the expectation around universities uh, taking action against allegations of sexual harassment um, and intervening on the side of victims um, uh, doesn't match the actual uh, sort of frameworks that, that that are in place. And I think that that's going to be increasingly a real area of, of sort of scrutiny for, for universities. 
Um, I think the other thing I, I, I would say is that, you know, this is about a broader sort of culture uh, in society and it's around um, sort of education uh, from an early age. And I think interestingly, this week, uh, the government finally has published um, uh, its guidelines on compulsory relationships education at primary schools and sex and relationships education in secondary schools. Uh, and it's uh, attracted controversy by saying that uh, parents don't have the right to withdraw their children from these lessons um, after the age of 15. Um, and I think, you know, the role that schools and parents, but the role that schools play uh, in terms of setting sort of behaviour norms, in terms of educating uh, uh, pupils about um, where boundaries lie uh, and what's right and what's wrong is, is going to be absolutely sort of critical for uh, how universities deal with um, uh, with this issue more generally. Um, I'd like to associate myself with uh, the comments from Lucy and Charles. It's absolutely correct. This is a serious issue. Institutions uh, students' unions and um, other student uh, peer groups all have a role to play in ensuring that students feel safe, feel in control, and are not uh, 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 and are not pressured or forced into acts that they don't uh, consent to. This is essential stuff, and it needs to be done. Yeah, I mean, I think it should be part of the the broader cult. You know, about creating the culture of the university. Um, and you know, kind of as part of it, uh, part of its ethical um, uh, uh, objectives, really. Uh, because I mean, this is something we look at—not um, specifically uh, sexual violence, but you know, what is the culture of that university, and how how do people feel? Um, do they feel it's a trusted environment? So it's all about trying to create some um, a, a culture that that it feels supportive. And you know that if you're going to go, you know, if if you have to go and talk to a male member of staff, you know, to report this issue. And and some of the stories that I've heard from students when they have reported it, um, and then the perpetrator has has been seen on the you know on the campus i can't imagine what a a traumatic experience that must be so it's all about i think the wider culture of the university um and you know knowing that you will have some kind of support whether that's through the student union or um through other you know other trusted um third parties absolutely it does i mean there was um an nus report on this issue last year there was also another report that we uh covered in an earlier um an earlier edition of this uh, podcast that included actual uh, uh testimony from women that have experienced these issues which was immensely powerful and um it is Clearly, it is a, a problem that students' unions and universities need to start looking at seriously. And, um, I mean, obviously, we need to support and encourage institutions in uh, doing that. There's been some guidance out recently from the OIA, and they've written on the site on the way that student complaints of sexual misconduct are uh, handled, which uh, uh, raises a lot of um, quite terrifying questions about institutions actually running something that amounts to a legal uh, process and whether students should have a full understanding of this uh, process. It's an immensely complicated area. There's lots of great work already being done. 
Um, I just would love to see an understanding, um, a proper data set of actually what is going on, what's the extent and what actually needs to be done. Now it's time for Yes, But Does It Correlate? Here to set this week's correlation question is Wonky's associate editor, who happens to be on the podcast this week. It's DK. Welcome back to Yes, But Does It Correlate? The podcast segment that treats HE's lesser known data sets with a semi-spurious statistical accuracy. If you own a lot of land, you can throw up a lot of student halls of residence for pennies, right? This week's plot of the proportion of all students living in provider-owned halls at providers in England in 2017-18 from HESA data against the area of the campus in hectares from the 2016-17 HESA estate dataset attempts to test this very hypothesis. Yes? But does it correlate? My sense, my sense would be bigger campuses, fewer students on halls. Uh, so... Oh, I've... Uh, this isn't an area that I would even all I all I can um, all I can think about is one. So that's not going to be statistically significant um, as far as DK is concerned. Uh, and I know that uh, our local um, university, uh, well, one that's not too far from Plymouth anyway, uh, has a very large campus and I know they're extending the amount of provider-owned halls on that campus. So from my sample of one, I would say there may be a correlation, but I feel very under-equipped to answer that that question, to be honest. Well, there is a very, very weak correlation. R squared is 0.27. There's clearly something to this, but there are a lot of other factors in play. Notable in the plot is the sheer amount of land owned by Oxford and Warwick universities and the huge proportion of students living in provider-owned accommodation in Oxford and Cambridge. There's also a bunch of institutions that have no provider-owned accommodation at all. Data is available for England only, and where the data doesn't exist, I've not plotted it. See you next time. And finally, the Secretary of State, Damien Hines, has written to the OFS with his annual priorities and strategic guidance for the regulator. Um, Charles, can you tell us more about this one? Uh, yeah, the, this is the annual letter. Uh, it confirms the teaching and capital grants, which OFS distributes to universities, and also covers a, a sort of wide range of issues that ministers want OFS to focus on. So things like access, mental health, uh, uh, universities' financial sustainability. And the line that really stood out for me was Damien Hines' wanting OFS to beef up investigations into sort of financial mismanagement or fraud uh, and taking action where public money's at risk and to trigger independent reviews of universities' governance where concerns are raised about senior pay uh, expenses and, and, and severance. And on the one hand, look, this is a response to recent headlines uh, about VCs um, leaving their posts under, uh, uh, under a cloud on the other, I think it reflects real concerns in Whitehall about the quality of decision-making and scrutiny at university level. And I think we shouldn't underestimate how much this is shaping perceptions in Treasury and DfE ahead of the spending review. And I think it's a warning that if the sector is lobbying for significant increases in direct public funding, that it needs to get his house in order. So a few swift points from me. It's interesting this has been signed by Damien Hines. The last one came from Sam Gima, but this comes from the Secretary of State himself. Uh, the sector's greatest graphologists have still to work out what the, the uh, uh, word is that 
Damien has written above his signature. It might be finally, it might be uh, thankfully, we've still not got a readout on that. Uh, there's a bizarre little point that he's keen that uh, Leo FS use even more of Leo on in whatever replaces unit stats because for some reason DFE is still convinced that uh, the Leo data set is actually meaningful to students in any way. Um, it's good to see that he has um, beefed up the work OFS are doing to support institutions in uh, ensuring that looked after children, uh, children in care, can access and benefit from HE. That's a really good thing and the letter is littered with reminders that the OFS still haven't finished registering everybody, which they were meant to have done by now. So there's a little bit of a hurry up there, I think. I mean, these letters are great for kind of HE Kremlinology, really, that, I mean, the the actual wording of this uh, list will have uh, gone through several drafts between DFE and the OFS, so uh, there's a lot to be gleaned from what is a short letter, I think the shortest on record, um, that yes, largely summarises and continues the guidance that was given by Sam Gimel last year. So that is about it for this week. Remember to delve deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find the links in the show notes. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. So search for The Wonky Show via iTunes or your favourite Android podcast directory. Or find the feed that you need on wonky.com forward slash podcast. If you fancy appearing as a guest on The Wonky Show, do drop us an email on team at wonky.com and we will be in touch. So thanks to Lucy and to Charles and to DK and everyone at Team Wonky for making this happen. And until next week, stay equal. Cool.